Hello, and welcome to Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge Series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and invite discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to climate change policy to decolonizing academia. During the academic year 2020-21, we moved the series online, which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online, opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Okay, well, welcome to everybody, everybody here here, as it were, at the LSE. Now, it really gives me huge pleasure to welcome back to the LSE, Ajahn Chang. Um, most of you um, who are studying development have already read quite a few of his works. Um, particularly, you all know his famous book, Kicking Away the Ladder, uh, Development Strategy and Historical perspective. You know, that book rightly won in 2003 the Gunnar Myrdal Prize for Best Monograph um, by the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. And uh, this book has really had a profound influence throughout the world. I remember one time when I was doing field research in Rwanda about 15 years ago, and I went into a small grocery shop and they only had a few books on sale and one of them was kicking away the ladder so I took a photo of it and and sent it back to Hajun. Um, you all know as well his economics the user's guide which has helped so many non-economists to understand basic economic ideas and theory but also economists to uh, look at their discipline in a new way and perhaps begin begin to understand economic ideas. Uh, his Cambridge Journal of Economics article, Breaking the Mold, an Institutional Political Economy um, Alternative to the Neoliberal Theory of the Market and the State is a landmark article, and many of you have already read it. Students studying with me will be looking at the debate he's had uh, over industrial policy in, in, in recent years. Um, and in 2005, Hajun was awarded jointly with Richard Nelson of Columbia University, the uh, Biontiev Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought. This is a, an incredibly prestigious award and it was well deserved. I'm also extremely happy to welcome um, uh, Dr. Richard Ozel Wright, as director of the Globalization and Development Strategy, Strategies Division at UNCTAD. He's also worked at the, he's worked at the United Nations in New York and Geneva. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Cambridge, and he's published widely on economic issues um, in the Economic Journal, the Cambridge Journal of Economics, the Journal of Development Studies, and the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. His latest book, 
is the resistible rise of market fundamentalism, um, an important contribution. I, I, I encourage you all to have a look at it. You know, I was, I, I remember seeing just uh, at the end of the year, I think it was in the last week of December, uh, uh, Richard being quoted in the New York Times. He said, it's clear that developing countries and especially poorer developing countries are going to be excluded for some time, talking about access to the vaccine in this current pandemic. So despite the understanding that vaccines need to be seen as a global good, the provision remains largely under control of large pharmaceutical companies in the advanced economies. Uh, it's really quite important um, to us that Richard's given up his time I'm here, uh, a major figure in his own right, as a discussant on Hajun's talk. So without further ado, Hajun, I want to turn the floor, as it were, over to you to talk to us with this intriguing title of, um, uh, 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 of engaging with multilateralism in terms of casting a new, new economic order. So over to you. Thank you. Thank you, James, uh, for that very kind introduction. Uh, in talking about the kicking the ladder, I cannot not mention James's critical catalytic role in the, its, uh, the creation because uh, the book really started with him pushing me and linking me up with the defeat in writing part of the book uh, as a report, uh, basically chapter three of the book on the, the history of institutional development in the rich countries. And that became the kind of start of the book. So that, that, that he's very much uh, the responsible for whatever good or bad uh, <laughs> the book has done. And yeah, I'm uh, really happy to have uh, Richard uh, the, as my discussant uh, today, Richard and I go back a long way. We studied the uh, PhD together in Cambridge. Uh, Richard was one year ahead of me under the same supervisor, Bob Rothon. And we've been, yeah, since the late 1980s uh, that sharing so many ideas and working together. So it, uh, it's uh, really gratifying uh, to be able to talk with uh, the James presiding and Richard uh, uh, being the commentator. You know, the, earlier this week, we had the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden. And that has frankly led uh, to a huge collective sigh of relief in, well, basically every country in the world. And I mean, there are so many aspects to this uh, the change, but in terms of uh, international the economy, into the global governance, there's a hope that 
the U.S. will abandon the isolationist approach taken under Donald Trump and revive its uh, commitment to multilateralism. And indeed, uh, Biden has decided to take uh, the U.S. back to the Paris Accord on climate change, back to the WHO's COVAX program. So I think uh, there's some kind of justification for having that hope. But actually, when it uh, comes to economic issues, international trade, investment, intellectual property rights, it's not clear whether Biden, the Biden administration will take a fundamentally different approach to the Trump administration. Because really, I mean, the, the U.S., uh, together with other rich countries, have been drifting away from multilateralism way, way before Donald Trump came on the scene. I'll, I'll that, uh, get into that uh, in a minute, but, you know, When the WTO was launched in 1995, the rich countries said that they were totally committed to the idea of multilateralism. Of course, uh, multilateralism uh, was already uh, put in place uh, to an extent uh, with the uh, Bretton Woods uh, system, the creation of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank uh, back in 1995. 94, I uh, sorry, 1944. We can talk about them, but, uh, but uh, today I'm not uh, going to talk about them and, and focus on the uh, WTO. And uh, at that time, it looked like their renewed commitment to multilateralism was uh, quite kind of impressive because they for the first time, accepted the introduction of a one country, one vote system in the WTO, the World Trade Organization. You know, the UN, in some issues that, that, that you, you have uh, the one country, one vote, but uh, ultimately the five permanent members of the Security Council have veto. So it's not fully democratic. The World Bank and the IMF uh, run like companies. It's a one dollar, one vote. I mean, slightly adjusted, uh, but uh, essentially that uh, you, your uh, power there is determined by uh, your paid in capital. But uh, in the WTO, they created an unprecedented uh, system, which is one country, one vote. So in theory, the developing countries could uh, vote against uh, the rich countries and have their way. Now, initially there was, uh, as a result, a lot of hope, but uh, it soon turned out that uh, this uh, commitment to multilateralism was basically cosmetic. You know, well, uh, most people in the audience are probably too young to Remember it, uh, but uh, the James Wood, the Richard Wood, Duncan Wood, you know, the, in the initial ministerial meetings of the WTO, Seattle 99, Cancun 2003, Hong Kong 2005, there was so much uh, that, 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 uh, problem 
with the way all the important decisions were made in the so-called green rooms. So these are totally unofficial meetings that include only the rich countries and a number of developing countries that cannot be ignored, like India and uh, the Brazil and so on. And uh, there were reports that uh, delegates from less uh, developing countries that uh, were trying to get into the room were barred uh, from it uh, by security guards. And yeah, soon it uh, became so obvious that uh, the rich countries had no intention of uh, letting the majority decide uh, the outcome. And initially, the, the rich countries that uh, tried to kind of ram through quite controversial proposals through the WTO, one was MIA or Multilateral Investment Agreement. So this is uh, that uh, kind of putting huge restrictions on the member countries' uh, regulation of uh, foreign direct investment. So you could say there's uh, trims or trade-related investment measures plus, or later the so-called NAMA proposal, the non-agricultural market access proposal, which uh, allegedly gave uh, greater access uh, to agricultural markets of the rich countries in return for developing countries uh, cutting their industrial tariffs. I mean, I don't have time to go into this. I'll be happy to talk about them in the Q&A session if anyone's interested. But uh, these were very lopsided proposals and uh, the rich countries tried to ramp uh, through this, uh, ramp this through the, the, the WTO. But the one country, one vote structure gave uh, the ability to developing countries to resist uh, that is uh, the proposals. So by like uh, the 2005, 2008, it was uh, clear that uh, the rich countries couldn't get their way uh, through uh, in the WTO as uh, they had imagined. Then they basically started to abandon uh, their commitment to multilateralism without shame. So even before the Trump administration, the U.S. had effectively pulled itself out of the WTO and had been focusing on getting bilateral agreements and regional agreements like uh, TPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. The EU may not have uh, rejected uh, multilateralism as openly as the U.S., but it also has uh, actively engaged in divide and rule. You know, for example, when the WTO ruled that uh, in the late 1990s, that uh, the Lome Convention, uh, which gave uh, professional trade treatment uh, to the so-called ACP countries, African, Caribbean, and Pacific countries, basically uh, Europe's uh, former colonies, when that this was uh, that, that decided the EU was told to make uh, the agreement uh, into something that is compatible with the WTO. And uh, when that happened, the EU proposed to replace it 
with another agreement called EPA or Economic Partnership Agreement. But that this agreement, sorry, in negotiating this agreement, it deliberately divided the ACP countries into seven regional subgroups instead of negotiating with all 79 ACP countries together because, you know, divided these uh, developing countries are much weaker. So instead of uh, negotiating with uh, 79 countries, they will negotiate uh, with, uh, I don't know, 14 Caribbean countries, 11 uh, Central African countries, uh, uh, seven East African countries and so on. And uh, it uh, made it a lot easier for them to push through their proposals. And uh, in some of these groups, uh, the negotiating capacity was so weak, the rumor has it that in negotiating EPA agreement with the Central Africa group, the EU actually wrote the position paper of the Central African group, because they just uh, didn't have the capacity to write the opposition paper. And EU said, here's our report, here's your report, which we wrote uh, for you. Let's uh, negotiate. I mean, what kind of negotiation is that? Anyway, the the point that I'm trying to make is that uh, the multilateral trading system has been already falling apart. And it is in the interest of developing countries to revive it because their only bargaining power is in numbers. But in reviving multilateralism, it is not enough to return to the WTO system as some quote-unquote liberals that, that, that try to argue, because in my view, the WTO, uh, WTO system has inherent biases against developing countries, and it needs to be radically reformed if it's to be truly pro-developmental. And this that, that, that is the proposal that I want to discuss today. And in doing this, I very much drawn the ideas behind the so-called new international economic order, which was called for by the United Nations 47 years ago, back in 1974, under the intellectual leadership of Raoul Previsch, the first executive secretary of UNCTAD, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, for which uh, Richard is the chief economist. Now, as you all know, the WTO system is based on the principle that free trade is the best for all countries under all circumstances. But free trade between countries at different levels of economic development is harmful in the long run for countries that are economically less developed. In the short run, in most cases, free trade will allow all trading partners to maximize their output and income. But that's only for the short term when you take these countries' productive capabilities as given. In the long run, free trade hampers the development of the less development, less developed trading partners by making it impossible for them to create capabilities in high productivity, high technology industries. 
And this is, uh, of course, the logic of infant industry, which has formed the basis of development policy in virtually all of today's rich countries. As I, let me share my screen from now on. As I show in these books, and I, uh, know that uh, many of you have but, uh, read at least some of these books and uh, my other writings. So I'm not going to go into this uh, that, uh, so much. But uh, basically these books that uh, show that today's developed countries use protectionism, government subsidies, restrictions on foreign direct investment, violation of other countries' intellectual property rights, all the things that the WTO either ban or make very difficult to use in order to develop their economies. So I'll, I'll be happy to share this at the PowerPoint later. So I'm just going to quickly show you these things that, you know, the restrictions on tariffs in the WTO, restrictions on the regulations on FDI, trims in the WTO, restrictions on uh, how, well, requirement that, uh, that uh, you need to protect intellectual property rights uh, strongly embodied in the TRIPS agreement uh, in the WTO. These are all things that go against, go against the very own the, the history of today's countries that lecture developing countries not to use them. I think uh, that, that, you know, out that just that, that, that spare all the details and give you one striking example that illustrate how this uh, the logic of infant industry protection is uh, so vital in enabling, although not guaranteeing, economic development of uh, developing nations. You know, the famous uh, Korean automobile manufacturer, Hyundai, started the uh, production back in uh, 1969. It was initially a construction company made a bit of money uh, by building roads that uh, in Vietnam during the Vietnam War in the 1960s. And yeah, it uh, wanted to do better things. Uh, so set up a car company. Its uh, initial production in 1969 was 2,000 cars a year. And in that same year, General Motors alone produced 4.4 billion cars. So if uh, Korea had the uh, free trade that, uh, with the US at the time, Hyundai would have been wiped out literally overnight. Yeah? It just would not have survived. So it needed uh, initially very heavy protection, government subsidies, direct and indirect, heavy restrictions on the foreign direct investment in the auto industry and so on. Now, if uh, that, uh, someone took 
the time machine and went back to 1969 and told people, look, there's this two-bit automobile company in South Korea, more of a glorified garage producing 2,000 cars today. But uh, give it uh, 45 years, it will be bigger than General Motors. If someone said that, that person would have been locked up in a lunatic asylum because it's just not possible for something like that to happen. But this is exactly what happened. As of 2015, Hyundai has been producing more cars than General Motors. So this is the power of the infant industry protection. And I'm not saying that the infant industry protection guarantees economic success. It's the minimum condition that you need. But without it, basically, there's no hope of that development. So the history of uh, today's rich countries, uh, starting from 18th century Britain down to today's uh, South Korea, tell you that the current uh, WT rule is uh, totally incompatible with uh, development, uh, sorry, the economic development uh, of developing nations. And this uh, principle needs to be embodied in any <coughs> sorry, in any pro-developmental the, the global economic order. And I call this a uh, principle asymmetric protectionism. Basically, the idea is not the kind of but uh, universal protectionism that uh, people like Donald Trump have been arguing, but uh, the principle is that economically weaker countries are allowed to protect and regulate more than the stronger countries. And uh, they'd be expected to reduce the use of these extra policy measures gradually as their economies develop. And I think uh, that uh, principle needs to be at the heart of any pro-developmental global economic system. Now, when I say this, many people say, oh, but that's unfair. We need a level playing field. A multilateral system. And indeed, the level playing field, it is like the well, as the Americans say, the motherhood and apple pie, it is something that is definitionally good, that it seems impossible to oppose it, but I say that that is something that we need to oppose if you are going to build a world economic system that is truly pro-developmental. Now, of course, that the level playing field is the right principle when the two teams in, say, a football game are equal. So if uh, the, the Argentinian national team and the Brazilian national team uh, plays a football match and the ground is tilted, so Argentinians uh, the attack from up the hill and Brazilians have to the attack from down the hill, it is unfair. But when the players are unequal, Level playing field is uh, the wrong principle to apply. 
you know, if uh, one team in a football game is the Brazilian national team and the other team is made up of, I don't know, a bunch of 11-year-old girls, it would be only fair that the girls attack from up the hill and the Brazilians that, that, that attack from down the hill. Of course, that uh, in real life, uh, you don't see that uh, kind of uh, football match exactly because we don't allow unequal players compete against each other in the first place. You know, that there are age divisions, gender divisions. And in many uh, sports, uh, that you have weight classes, you know, boxing, wrestling, weightlifting. So the heavier players not allowed to compete directly against the, the, the lighter players. And in the lighter weights of uh, boxing, like uh, the, the flyweight, featherweight, the weight band is only two to three pounds, two to three pounds, meaning one to 1.5 kilos. Eh? So in boxing, we think a guy who's uh, two kilograms uh, heavier than the other guy, hitting the other guy is so wrong that we make it structurally impossible for these uh, the, the two people to compete in the, the same ring. And in economics, we think, yeah, that uh, Honduras, that uh, Guinea-Bissau, they should all that, uh, compete on the same terms uh, with uh, the Switzerland and the US. I mean, how absurd is that? Now, of course, uh, when I say this, that uh, the defenders of the current global economic system argue, oh, but uh, there's uh, the provision for SDT or special antifragile treatment. So whatever unfairness there is, uh, is already dealt with. Actually, this SDTs make only minimal allowances you know, the least developed countries, roughly countries are under, uh, with uh, per capita income under $1,000, they are allowed some uh, the extra provisions. So for example, export subsidies that other countries cannot use, they are allowed to use. But these extra provisions are very few. And when it comes to other developing countries, developing countries that are not LDCs, they, the only allowance that they have is uh, that, that they can take longer time to introduce the WTO rule. But they have to follow the same rules in the end. I mean, they might have extra five years, 10 years to introduce those rules, but basically they have to the, the compete on the same rules as the, the rich countries. And more importantly, I would argue that it is wrong to use the word special in special antifragile treatment. You know, it's a bit like uh, calling, I don't know, the, the uh, stair lifts are for wheelchair users or braille writings are for blind people, special treatment. No, the, these are not special treatment. These are differential treatments for different countries with different needs and capabilities. This has to be established.
the rich countries are not doing favor by giving this uh, extra provisions. It has to be some. It has to be understood that uh, something that is integral to a fair global economic system. Yeah, this uh, principle of uh, asymmetric uh, protectionism. So I would argue that a truly pro-development pro and multilateralism needs to provide the maximum possible amount of policy space in which uh, countries can pursue policies according to their own capabilities and their own needs. And this is what has to be at the foundation of what I call new, new international economic order. Now, people who know the history of the earlier NIEO, new international economic order, will probably try to remind me that actually things are even worse for this kind of uh, the systemic reform because that, that the conditions for a fair global system are worse today than it was in the 1970s. And there are some reasons that, that to say that, you know, for example, in the 1970s, post-colonial guilt uh, still lingered, you know, many African countries uh, became independent only in the 1960s and early 70s. You know, some of the Portuguese uh, colonies in Africa were not uh, even independent at the time. So, you know, there were a lot of uh, colonial guilt uh, on the part of the rich countries, which made them uh, less aggressive. Also, at the time, there was that that systemic competition between the capitalist bloc and the socialist bloc, and some developing countries were able to get uh, some concessions that are by playing uh, this game cleverly. You know, India was an example uh, when the Americans uh, that uh, wouldn't give them the right uh, concessions that are necessary foreign aid, it would uh, that, uh, threaten and often actually do that, uh, threatened to go to, to, to the Soviet Union and got concessions from there. Also, the very pushback against uh, the NIEO in the during the neoliberal period has made some ideas in the NIEO very difficult to implement. You know, for example, the best example is that uh, Richard knows about this uh, far more than I do. You know, that uh, during the 1970s, there's a call for code of conduct for transnational corporations initiated by the United Nations. Now, during the neoliberal era, this has been completely turned against and became 
trims, yeah? So basically in the 70s, people are discussing how you introduce code of conduct for the transnational corporations. But uh, by the 90s, they were actually not just code of conduct, but that the that, uh, international rules restricting what the, the developed uh, the individual countries that can do in relation to the transnational corporations. It's that the complete turnaround. And the last, but not the least, uh, the dominance of the neoliberal ideology in the last few decades has made the developing countries more accepting, far more accepting of the international economic order than they were in the 1970s. So I am but, uh, the acutely aware of the, these changes, but there are also the factors that are pulling in the other direction. First of all, there have been the significant changes in the world economy. The developing countries now have much more weight in the global economic system. In 1974, high-income countries accounted for nearly four-fifths of the world economy. Today, oh, not it. Uh, they don't even account for two-thirds of it. And this uh, trend will be accelerated uh, by the pandemic because as I'll uh, go back uh, to later, a lot of uh, the, the rich countries are basically messed up by uh, their pandemic management. A lot of developing countries have uh, managed it uh, very well. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the rich countries are going to shrink by 10% or more uh, in 2020. Many developing countries are uh, have been able to contain their the, the contraction to low one-digit uh, percentage. So the, the, the weight of uh, the world economy will shift uh, more and more towards uh, the, the developing world, which will give them the more bargaining power. And also the, the interaction between the developing countries have become much more important than in the 1970s. For one thing, South-South trade has increased a lot. I couldn't quite get the figures uh, for the 70s, but even compared to the mid-90s, the beginning of the WTO system, only 42% of world trade was uh, South-South trade, uh, that is trade between developing countries. By the mid-2010s, it had uh, risen to 57%. And many of you will say, oh, but that's China, but that is uh, the, the only part of the story. South-South trade, excluding China, was uh, around 35% in the, the mid-1990s, in the mid-2010s, it was uh, 42%. So, yeah, the big part of it was uh, the rise of China, but uh, even excluding China, actually this had uh, risen quite a lot. Also in the recent period, China, India, and some other developing countries have emerged as important international financial actors. 
in lending, foreign aid, FDI. You know, even 20 years ago, the foreign aid was uh, something that uh, countries in Europe and North America and Oceania uh, gave, not something that uh, countries like China and India uh, gave. Yeah? I mean, FTI, same story, you know. But now that, that they are emerging as uh, the important financial actors and they will become more important. And thirdly, although a bit less uh, important in practice, now we have a sudden-led international financial institutions like the New Development Bank, formerly the BRICS Bank, and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So that, that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there's literally only one bank in town called the World Bank. And if you didn't like it, if they didn't like you, you just didn't have any access to any money. Now that's not true. Yeah? You can get the bilateral loans from the Chinese government. You can get that foreign investment from India. You can get that, that multilateral loans from Asian Infrastructural Investment Bank. So all of these mean that developing countries are less dependent on the rich countries and therefore can be more forceful in their demands for a new, new international economic order. There have also been changes in ideas. Now, the NIO might have failed uh, in the political sense, but some of the ideas that were embodied in it, which were at the time considered outrageous, now have become mainstream without people realizing it. You know, this uh, 0.7% GDP target for foreign aid for the rich countries, this was already uh, something that that, that, that was, uh, sorry, this was something that was already proposed uh, in the NIO proposal. At the time, it was uh, considered ridiculous. Some countries have uh, already attained it. During the NIO, there were calls for cancellation of debts for developing countries. It was poo-pooed as a pipe dream. But a lot of debts, of course, nowhere near enough, have been cancelled, most notably through the so-called HIPIC initiative. And a one-country, one-vote system which was called for during the days of NIO in the, the international organizations, which then was uh, considered uh, absolutely ridiculous, was introduced in the WTO. Although, as I already said, that, that uh, the rich countries have found this uh, very inconvenient and uh, have been uh, kind of uh, uh, abandoning it. Uh, but, you know, these are the very significant uh, uh, changes in what we see as uh, uh, something legitimate, something normal, something feasible. In addition to the ideas uh, from the NIO itself, some of the recent uh, changes have shaken the legitimacy of uh, the 
uh, neoliberal ideas, uh, the 2008 global financial crisis, of course, it has that, uh, actually resulted in very little actual change because of uh, the very strong uh, the resistance uh, from the financial sector, which is uh, very, very powerful. But in terms of the legitimacy of the ideas, that experience has uh, that, uh, totally kind of uh, uh, eroded people's trust in the efficacy of open deregulated financial markets. And the macroeconomic policy conducted uh, since the crisis, especially those uh, the, 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 you know, innovative uh, monetary policies such as extremely low interest rates and quantitative easing, you know, that, that people don't often realize how this that, 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 that prolonged low interest rate uh, is that, that to- something totally unprecedented in the history of capitalism. You know, that for the last 12 years, uh, interest rates have been at the lowest level in the history of capitalism. And uh, that, that kind of monetary policy totally goes against that, uh, the neoliberal the orthodoxy, although neoliberals that, uh, try to pretend that they have always that, that been open to this kind of idea. So that, that uh, financial crisis has uh, that, uh, quite seriously uh, challenged the legitimacy of uh, neoliberal ideas and the more recent uh, COVID-19 crisis has invalidated many of the conventional neoliberal ideas regarding the role of the government. In the last year or so, all the rich countries have subsidized and de facto nationalized companies. They have paid employment subsidies in Britain that uh, we call it uh, the furlough scheme, yeah? basically the, the government paying up to 80% of uh, the, the workers' wages if uh, the company retains them. You know, can you imagine a capitalist government working with a neoliberal principle paying 80% of someone's wages? I mean, uh, this is uh, socialization of employment. Yeah? Even that uh, the anti-poor Trump administration was compelled to send income subsidies. A lot of countries have uh, beefed up uh, the income subsidies and uh, unemployment benefits. There are the, the protections for self-employed workers, uh, which uh, in many countries have been outside the welfare uh, system. Huge budget deficits. You know, the, the German government, uh, fam- famous for its uh, fiscal orthodoxy, has uh, the, the temporarily suspended this law that uh, puts the, the ceilings on public debt. Yeah. So just about every orthodoxy in the neoliberal playbook has been abandoned or turned on its head and yeah, at the moment that uh, they are seen as uh, emergency measures, but that uh, when the, the pandemic is over, this will change the terms of debate uh, on uh, the, the role of the government. Yeah. 
I mean, this has happened in the past that after major crisis, you know, that uh, after the First World War, I mean, a lot of countries got used to the idea that, that uh, women could uh, work in factories. Yeah? I mean, after the Second World War, welfare state was that, uh, accepted as that, uh, something uh, completely central uh, to a good society and so on. So, you know, that, that these changes will come. I mean, of course, that at this moment, I cannot predict, no one can predict how these will play out. But that, that what are being done at the moment will have significant effect on the, what that, that becomes that, uh, legitimate, what becomes normal, and so on. And finally, there are oh, something going. Yeah, okay. Contingent factors. By calling them contingent, I don't mean less important or marginal. It's just that these are things that are not kind of, uh, integrally uh, tied up with the global economic system. But uh, there are these contingent factors that work in favor of a NNIEO, new, new international economic order. And first of them, <coughs> I would say it's uh, climate change because the urgency of the problem is making us realize that the humanity is bound up in a common fate. And as a result, uh, putting increasing pressure on the rich countries to do more to help uh, developing countries, uh, especially through large scale uh, transfer of technologies uh, for climate mitigation and adaptation. So this is that uh, kind of uh, creating pressure for greater international cooperation, recognition of uh, the uh, common fate of the humanity, and then there's the China factor. You know, China is in a historically unprecedented position of being a major actor in the global economy while still being a developing country. This no country has been in this position. You know, China used to account for not even 3% of global economy in 1974. And today it accounts for 16% and that's for 2018. So, you know, with the pandemic, you know, the, the rich economies are shrinking by 10, 12%, uh, China growing at, I don't know the exact figure, the couple of uh, percent. I mean, that will have up the Chinese share that uh, probably by 2% points, and this uh, will uh, likely continue. Now, China's uh, unique status as a global economic actor that still is a developing country, and at that uh, one with uh, the socialist past, uh, with all the baggage of uh, the don online movement and uh, international brotherhood and so on. These things uh, makes it behave rather differently from other big economies. So in terms of its aid policy, approach to foreign direct investment, approach to infrastructural development, it uh, has a very different uh, viewpoint. And it uh, puts uh, far fewer conditions on these uh, loans and aids. 
Now, I'm not saying that there isn't an element of dependency type of relationship between China as a manufacturing nation and other developing countries as uh, raw material exporters. I mean, there is that, uh, an element of that. And in some aspects, China is uh, behaving worse than the, the rich countries. For example, when it constructs uh, infrastructure, it uh, brings uh, the, the, a lot of workers that, uh, from China. So the local population don't even get the benefit of uh, the working in a construction site. So I'm not saying that China somehow, you know, an angel you know, as a good Korean whose ancestors have been bullied by everyone inside, you know, the, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Russians, the Mongols, the Manchus, and more recently the Americans, you know, I have uh, that, that, that no kind of uh, the, uh, favor for any of these uh, the big countries, but China is different and that does that, that, that make a difference. Yeah? Also, just because China is there as a different actor, it gives uh, developing countries uh, greater bargaining power. As I said earlier, in the 1980s, there was only one bank in town. And there was that, uh, basically no bargaining power on the part of the developing countries. Now that uh, they have that. So the China factor will uh, create uh, different dynamics. And uh, last uh, but not least, uh, two... Sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, there are the, quite a few typos here. Uh, yeah, the continued uh, shouldn't be there. COVID is misspelled. Sorry about this mess. Uh, yeah, and then the, there are things uh, that will the change uh, international the, the, the political economy that uh, come from uh, the COVID-19 crisis. First is that the pandemic has uh, heightened our awareness of uh, humanity's uh, common fate. You know, we basically realize that unless everyone is safe, no one can be truly safe because we are now so bound up with each other. And that, that uh, realization of common fate that, uh, that had already been growing because of the challenges of climate change, I think it will that, uh, change our global political dynamic. But also mishandling of that uh, COVID uh, crisis by the rich countries is that, uh, seriously changing how developing countries see the rich countries. You know, at the time of uh, the, this talk, so, well, according to the Jones Hopkins uh, the statistics, uh, which I think is uh, the most uh, the reliable, COVID 
19 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants were 140 in the UK, 124 in the US, and 107 in France. In contrast, the corresponding numbers are 0.04 in Vietnam and Tanzania, 1.24 in Rwanda, and 1.87 in Ethiopia. Now, this is a huge, huge difference. Of course, uh, when you give these numbers, people say, oh, but uh, the, you know, the, the poor countries, they cannot collect uh, data as uh, well. That uh, Some of them have one-party state, repressive government. Okay, let's suppose that uh, Vietnam has uh, the underreported COVID-19 deaths by 100 times, which would be impossible because that, uh, in this uh, the age of uh, internet, you know, that you cannot hide uh, something like that. But yeah, but, uh, let's uh, say that they have uh, underreported about 100 times. Is the uh, death rate per 100,000 people is still four? You know, one thirtieth of the, the US is, yeah? One thirty-fifth uh, of uh, the UK is, yeah? So, you know, that you, you see this uh, stark contrast where countries that used to lecture these poor countries like uh, the Vietnam and Tanzania and uh, the Ethiopia, how to run the, their society. These countries have totally mismanaged this uh, pandemic. And many developing countries are revising their view of these uh, the, the rich countries, I mean, which uh, the, the, in many cases happen to be their former colonial masters. Yeah? You know, centuries of history of colonialism, imperialism, economic domination, and cultural indoctrination have convinced people in developing countries, and I used to be one of them when I was uh, living in uh, South Korea, that you know, everything runs perfectly in the U.S. You know, the Britain is uh, the, 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 the country that invented the, the human rights. Yeah? I mean, France is uh, the, the epitome of uh, human civilization. You know, these countries, uh, the, the seeing those uh, the countries that are falling apart uh, in the most uh, dramatic way are now reassessing their view of those uh, countries. They are slowly overcoming this uh, inferiority complex that uh, they have held for centuries. And once uh, this change in perspective takes hold, developing countries will no longer demur to rich countries in the same way they used to. And this is, I think, subtly, but very importantly, going to change the international political dynamic. No more lecturing from countries like the US and the UK to developing countries how to run a good society. So I think uh, that's uh, something that that, that, uh, is slowly developing, but could potentially have even bigger impacts than shifting economic balances 
okay, the, I'm, I'm running out of time. So the, let me uh, the, conclude. The, so, you know, developing countries need the, a pro-developmental multilateral world economic order, which I have called NNIEO. This has to be based on the principle of asymmetric uh, protectionism and should maximize the policy space. There are factors that work against that, that, that the realization of this idea, but there are also other factors that could potentially facilitate it. Of course, that uh, these things uh, do not automatically happen, you know, that uh, countries have to create that, that, that common vision, they have to act together, they have to uh, negotiate. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is a, uh, uh, sorry, the result of this is a foregone conclusion, but I think that, that, that there are reasons to believe that uh, this is a time to call for a new new international economic order and uh, work uh, towards that. And there are reasons to believe that uh, this might be actually far more feasible than what uh, many people think. Thank you very much. I'll stop there. Ajun, thank you so much for that. As as usual, extremely insightful, sharp um, uh, analysis. Richard, can I call on you to respond? Thanks. Thanks, James, and thanks to Hajun. It's always difficult. Hajun presents things in a kind of encyclopedic way, which it's it's always very difficult to know uh, where exactly to intervene, especially as I agree with a lot of what he says. Uh, I, I, I'll, I will be slightly more jaundiced than he is. I think I think the challenge is are even greater than he suggests. And I think this, despite his encyclopedic uh, uh, presentation, there's something really big missing from his story, uh, which, which makes the challenges we face even more difficult, partly as he recognized, I think, in his introductory remark, but it's the role of finance and finance capital in shaping the multilateral uh, system in ways that I think make it even more difficult to forge the kind of progressive agenda mm. that he rightly says uh, is desperately needed given the kinds of challenges that we face on the climate, economic, uh, health fronts. Uh, uh, so, so let me, and I'll come back to Joe Biden at the end of that, I think, if I can, given Hajun started with Biden. Um, I mean, I guess at the heart of Hajun's story is this disconnect between the dominant narrative of a, which I'm sure all students have heard about, this the liberal international order, the kind of rules-based order that has been gradually perfected over the course, really, of the last hundred years, beginning with Wilson uh, and, and his ideas at the League of Nations, cut short by a protectionist turn in the 1920s and the 1930s, picked up again at Bretton Woods uh, uh, with, the, with the creation of what we now consider to be the modern multilateral system, uh, struggled a little bit in the 1970s as we came to terms with shifting out of a fixed exchange rate system to a flexible exchange rate system, but, but we got that right in the end, deregulated finance, 
uh, 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 up the ante on the trade front with the Uruguay round by making it a more expansive uh, effort, bringing developing countries into financial markets in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, uh, signing up to NAFTA and, 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 and further improvements on the trading system, more rules-based systems, creating the WTO, uh, uh, introducing the Euro, this kind of kind of uh, Panglossian view, kind of Whiggish history of, of, of the world in which somehow we've endlessly perfected the, the uh, rules-based open system that if you operate in my world is endlessly praised by uh, international bureaucrats and policymakers of one strike or another. And as Harjan rightly points out, that narrative quite clearly clashes with the kind of neo-mercantilist system that we operate in today, in which the rules of the game are very clearly rigged in favor of those who are already at the top of the pile, in which levels of inequality have uh, both within and across countries have, have never reached the kinds of pinnacles that we've, that we've seen over the last two or three decades, in which we have a, gr a growth system that is incredibly dependent on uh, uh, levels of high levels of indebtedness, that again, we haven't ever seen before in, in, in history and brings its own vulnerabilities and tensions uh, and, 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 and problems uh, that particularly developing countries, but not only developing countries, um, uh, have faced. And, and, and this disconnect between you know, the talk of the level playing field, the talk about free trade and free enterprise, um, uh, the talk about comparative advantages, this, this kind of efficiency, uh, driving machine and the way in which this neo-mercantilist system uh, works is, is, an, is, is incredibly stark and poses all kinds of uh, challenges, I think, to, to a, a progressive agenda. And I think to understand how we got there, it's very important to recognize that the kind of intellectual foundations of the New Deal, uh, uh, sorry, of the Bretton Woods system in the New Deal and this is an American this is an American story. I think Hajan doesn't talk about the hegemonic role of the United States, but you can't tell this story without recognizing that hegemonic role. But, but you know, the, the, the origins of Bretton Woods were very much in this very unique period of American history in the New Deal, as the United States discovered for itself that a strong state was the basis of a more inclusive and a fairer economy and decided quite rightly, that in an interdependent world, you had to take the values of the New Deal and somehow uh, internationalize them uh, uh, through, through multilateral institutions, at the center of which, as it was in the uh, New Deal itself in America, was the need to control uh, reckless and footloose finance. Uh, the, the heart of the original New Deal uh, and the, the reason it was a success in the United States was that Roosevelt was willing to take on the vested interests uh, of finance to boost uh, the strength of organized labor as a countervailing power to do so. And, and I think, you know, it was true of Harry Dexter White, as it was true of Keynes, that you needed to be able to make sure that finance was not only controlled at the national level, and in the heart of finance in Wall Street, but also at the international level too, because footloose capital is incredibly destructive of uh, uh, efforts to uh, create a more inclusive 
and, and equal world, and ultimately a world in which people have trust and faith in the institutions of government and governance. And, and, and to, to the extent that the Bretton Woods system worked, and it only worked for 30 years, it was because there was degrees of control of finance that allowed that, uh, that, that allowed that sense of trust, allowed for the policy space that Harjun quite rightly says is central to any sort of new international economic order uh, to take root. And, and of course that was destroyed, that, that element of the New Deal, which was challenged very early on in the creation of Bretton Woods. It was, there was already pushback in the, in the, in, 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 uh, in the 1940s against in, in the World Bank, there was the, the, the bankers were excluded from Bretton Woods consciously by the by the negotiators. Um, uh, but they began to push back very early in, in 1946-47. The World Bank was already courting Wall Street, uh, which I don't think was the intention of White or Keynes. And of course, most famously, organized business and organized finance was instrumental in undermining the idea of an international trade organization, which was the other leg of the Bretton Woods agenda to manage international trade, um, uh, 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 which was pushed back by, by the US Congress, leaving the general agreement on trade and tariffs as the only element of, of the trading system to complement the uh, control of finance through the IMF and the World Bank. So, so, I mean, and that system, I mean, there were lots of problems with that system and we can talk about that, but it did work reasonably well, particularly for the uh, rich countries, but to some extent for some developing countries too, precisely because it provided the kind of policy space that Harjun talked about to design development strategies and economic policy in line with a, a country's particular institutional uh, competencies and political uh, needs. That system was blown up by the United States in, the, in response to the disruptions of the 1970s uh, through what Paul Volcker, who is an instrumental character in blowing up the Bretton Woods system, uh, what, he what he called the controlled disintegration of the global economy. And, and, and what that essentially meant was letting finance uh, back, letting the, 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 the genie of finance out of the bottle and giving the governance of the global economy to essentially private financial interests. Um, and, that's, and that happens in the late 70s and the early 1980s against very much pushing against the efforts of the developing world to forge a new international economic order uh, in, in the 1970s that Harjun talked about, but you know, big finance won, uh, organized developing countries lost that battle to restructure global governance in a way that would be fairer and, and more inclusive. And we've essentially been living through uh, that, uh, that world for the last 40 years and it's hollowed out multilateralism in many respects, uh, or worse still, it's allowed multilateralism to be captured by large uh, private interests, whether that's in finance or indeed in the real economy. Uh, you know, the, the Uruguay round was very heavily shaped by pharmaceutical interests, by interests in the audio visual sector. Uh, that's why we have intellectual property in the, in, as part of the rules of the, of the international trading system. And, 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 you know, that's been the single, in my opinion, that's been the single most important feature 
of the uh, of, of global governance since the 1940s. It's a fundamental break with the New Deal and the idea of international internationalizing uh, the New Deal. And, and unless we find ways of putting that genie back into the bottle, uh, I think it's very difficult to advance with the kind of agenda that Harjun rightly says is needed to build a, a fairer uh, and, and a more effective multilateralism that can address these big challenges of, of, of climate change, uh, inequality, the new, the new digital uh, technologies, et cetera. So I think, I think, I agree, I mean, I agree with what Harjun said, but I think we need to have a, a very frank discussion about the way in which footloose capital uh, both financial capital and non-financial capital has achieved a very, very strong position of uh, power in the international uh, arena, uses international uh, institutions and rules to uh, uh, further strengthen its position. And I think, I think going back to Harjun's first point about Joe Biden, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the future of the multilateral system Will, will hinge upon whether Biden himself is willing to go down the Roosevelt ro uh, route of controlling uh, uh, unregulated finance, Wall Street, in his own backyard. Because, you know, in a dollarized world, uh, Wall Street remains the, the center of, of, of economic and to some extent political power. And, and I think that is the big question when we look at Biden, we need to ask ourselves, is Biden more like Roosevelt or more like Harry Truman? And I fear that the answer is Biden is more like Harry Truman. And that is going to make the task of progressives to address the climate, environmental and health challenges all the more difficult going forward. Richard, thank you so much. I knew we were right in inviting you to come in such a short 10 minutes to put such uh, pointed uh, remarks. Hajun, before we sign off with our YouTube audience, would you like to come back for just a, a couple of minutes so we have a uh, time for Q&A afterwards? Yeah, thank you, Richard, uh, for those comments. I completely agree with you. I mean, the finance, Footloose finance is the biggest problem. I mean, I concentrated on the, the trading system, investment regimes, and intellectual property rights. But yes, I mean, that, that's that, that one aspect that, that uh, I didn't talk about, and that is very, very important. So, yeah, I mean, uh, no disagreement there. I mean, uh, thank you for pointing that out. I mean, just one uh, comment on the New Deal, you know, people often think a New Deal is about macroeconomic policies, about government spending. It's not, I mean, it's uh, not even Keynesian because that, that when you think about it, the New Deals were in 1929 and uh, 1933, the two New Deals. And Keynes uh, didn't even write his uh, general theory until 1936. Yeah? So it's a uh, very kind of uh, British, even Cambridge-centric uh, the, the thing to call New Deal Keynesian. It is actually founded on American institutionalist school. 
of Devlin, Mitchell, and so on. And yes, at the, it was mainly about the in, institutional reform with a view to changing uh, the political power balance. Yeah? I mean, Richard uh, said it, the uh, Stigler Act yeah? constrained uh, the financial sector, the Wagner Act that uh, uh, strengthened the unions, the Social Security Act that uh, gave uh, the workers a uh, stronger bargaining power because uh, they don't, uh, didn't have to worry about uh, starving to death as much as uh, they used to. So the, these institutional reforms that were intended to change the political balance of power was uh, at the heart of uh, New Deal. And however much that, that uh, Biden and others uh, talk about Green New Deal and so on, uh, without uh, that uh, willingness to make institutional reforms to change uh, the political balance of power, it that, that, that doesn't deserve the name New Deal and will not succeed. And yeah, I mean, I, I share your skepticism about Biden, you know, that he's a wing of the Democratic Party is that uh, beholden to the Wall Street uh, as much as that uh, the Republican Party is. You know, they may that, that, that do fewer crazy things and maybe willing to make a little more concessions uh, to poor people, but uh, essentially they are the same people. And yeah, in that sense, uh, that there isn't that, 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 that huge amount of hope there, but you know, we have to uh, argue for the maximum and then you might get something. I mean, if you become too realistic and uh, begin to argue for what is only feasible tomorrow, then uh, there are very few changes we can make. So that, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that uh, Richard uh, pushed me even further to kind of, uh, make those uh, outrageous demands that, uh, you know, put the financial genie back into the butter. I think uh, that's uh, the key to... Uh, We're all prisoners of hope, Arjun. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I uh, tried to live by Antonio Gramsci's motto that uh, you need uh, pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. So. We thank you very much. Hajun and Richard Kozel Wright, uh, very stimulating. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE. And you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website or find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.